Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Hello, and welcome to the Writer's Block Party podcast. I am Meredith Bond, and I am here, as always, with the lovely... Prue Warren. Hello. Hi, Prue. (laughs) I hope you've had a good week. I have been doing some research for our next topic because it is one that is so interesting and can be so complicated as well. Mm. What is it? Say the name. We are talking about repeating motifs. Yes. Yes. And while I did not do any research, I did read the book that you assigned me. Yes. And um, Monroe's The Beach House. And made very careful notes about what was a repeating motif. So I feel like uh, I am am your student. I I did the reading teacher. (laughs) Well, you're better than me because I have gotten through uh, chapter five, (laughs) which is not deep enough into the book. I would say it is, as as novels go, it's not the most gripping one I've ever read. So Really? Wait a minute. I really... There are a number of books named The Beach House, so I really hope that you read the right right one. Mary Alice Monroe? Yeah, Mary Alice Monroe. Okay, let's start off, first of all, all, with a definition. Okay. Okay? So, according to, you would not believe who this source is. (laughs) You set yourself up now for failure. According to Neil Gaiman... Neil Gaiman. That's a good source. See? See? According to Neil Gaiman, um, there's an article online that I have the tab open so I can even send it to you to put into the show notes. Nice. Am I good or what? Good. Um, He he wrote an article for Masterclass on repeating motifs, on motifs. And he defines a motif as... Quote unquote, quote, motif is a literary technique that consists of a repeated element that has symbolic significance to a literary work. Sometimes a motif is a recurring image, other times it's a repeated word, phrase, or topic expressed in language. A motif can be a recurring situation or action, it can be a sound or smell, a temperature, or even a color. Okay, would you do me a favor? And uh, I'm I'm just scribbling a list. Yeah, I got it. Can be a recurring image. It can be a situation or action. What was in between those two? A repeated word, phrase, or topic. Yep. Okay. A situation or action. Hmm? Sound, smell, temperature, or even a color. Okay. Well, I think uh, the concept of even a color is wrong because I think color is easily the most, uh, I think that's a, that's a really easy one. You know, when you see bed, when you, uh, right. There are just, there's, that seems easy to me. Right. Okay. Good. Excellent. I like the list. 
Yeah, I thought it was a very good list. So that's, that is the, the technical definition, according to Mr. Gaiman. Before you delve into the beach house and tell me what you found there, okay. let me give you some examples that I found, that I thought of, and some that I just found uh, mentioned on the great internets. <laughs> okay? Okay, go. Okay. Uh, one of my favorites is if you watched the television show, The Bridgertons. Yeah. There is a repeated motif throughout the television series of a bee, the insect. Okay. So the very first, one of the very first shots in the television show is of the Bridgertons front door. And the knocker, and on the knocker is crawling a little yellow jack, uh, yellow and white, black striped fuzzy bee. That bee shows up again and again and again as a pin, as a hair ornament, and at the very end of the entire show, when Daphne gives birth to her first child. The camera cuts to a picture, to a shot of a bee sitting on the windowsill right next to her. What do you think that bee represents? Okay, a bee, it represents two different things. First of all, a bee represent, can represent spring and life. Okay. It can also represent industriousness and fertility. In Bridgerton, it has a special significance because it's also teasing the reader. The bee at the very end is teasing the reader to the next uh, installment of the series. The second book of the series of Bridgerton is all about Anthony, Daphne's older brother. Mm -hmm. And he becomes, uh, what is he, an earl or a viscount? I forget which. But he becomes Lord Bridgerton when his father dies. His father died of a bee sting. <laughs> so that's foreshadowing. So, so in this case, actually, the bee is actually a negative. The bee is deadly. Exactly. One of the things I like about this concept that they wove bees throughout, and I think that's very brilliant, is my, my interpretation of a bee is based on hives and busy as a bee mm-hmm. and sounds like that society where gossip rules and where lady whistledown can upset the entire society with just a few words yeah i think i think that bee um represents more than i, I just i think that's very clever that's a that seems like a really brilliant repeated motif isn't it though i thought yep. it was great some other motifs that uh, I pulled from the internet, Jane Eyre, in Charlotte Bronte's book, fire is a motif incorporated into the story's imagery, into the language, and into key plot incidents. Throughout. Sure. Birth on the roof with the house burning down. Exactly. And people are described as hot or dazzling or energizing or like fire, and it's just, it's a repeated motif throughout the whole story. 
you know, I've only ever read Jane Eyre once. I'm ashamed to admit. I know. I, I read it when I was in high school. I do not remember a single person who was dazzling or energized. Yeah. <laughs> They were all dour and sad and, oh, God, we were having, we're having some great porridge in the yes. dark room. <laughs> I don't remember any fire at all. <laughs> <laughs> and also in uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, there is oh. a motif of light and dark. Throughout the play, Romeo refers to Juliet as a powerful light source. The night, the moon is no match for Juliet's beauty. And she says that Romeo lights her and uh, their love is discussed as a flash of lightning. And so light. The most famous line is, you know, it is the East and Juliet is the sun. Exactly. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, Is there a lot of darkness imagery as well? Or do we just assume there's darkness because these people see such lightness around their true love? Yes, I think I I think it's that way because the the person who was talking about this only mentioned the sources of light. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yep. Um, I used to watch the TV show Lost with mm-hmm. rabid fascination. I mean, utterly rabid fascination, and I've been rewatching it lately. There are so many repeated motifs, but this is the danger. I think. With that story, which was an ongoing mystery, what the hell is going on? It's a, a story of survivors of a plane crash on a mysterious island. Mm-hmm. Many of the repeated motifs never paid off. Really? And yeah, because I think that the writers made a weird world and hoped they'd write their way out of it. And... I think the end, the, in the end, it was unsuccessful. People were unhappy with the ending of Lost. Huh. But as I watch, I'm like in the beginning of season two. It's on for seven seasons. It's quite an epic. And you mentioned light and dark. And there are, there are continual references to black and white in Lost that are that I can remember back when it came out in, I don't know what year, 2005 or something. My friends and I would gather together and stand on street corners waiting for the school bus going, well, they were playing backgammon, you know, that's black and white. Yes, it is. It's black and white. <laughs> so there's that, the, the power of a repeated motif can really engage people and be overt and obvious, or it can be subtle, like the bee in Bridgerton. They're both very powerful, that they have to pay off. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And actually, the the motif of light and dark is a very, very common one. Sure. Good and evil. Good and evil, um, hiding and coming out. I used that one in one of my books. Did you do it as black and white? No, I did it as dark and light. Dark and light. Yeah. So in my book, A Token of Love, um, the hero is scarred uh, from war from from a saber cut across his face and it was sewn up badly. So it, his face is all on one side, all puckered and, and horrible and scarred. And so he keeps to the dark. He keeps himself literally in the dark, physically in the dark so that people don't see him, can't right. see him. Right. And the heroine brings him out into the light, both physically and emotionally and 
there's also she has a, a flint box that uh, was given to her father by her mother uh, on their like 10th wedding anniversary, a silver flint box. And at the end of the book, the heroine gives it to the hero. She's giving him. She's giving him light and she's giving him love. That's nice. I'm just thinking that in, in Eastern cultures, it's not true that white is for weddings and black is for funerals, right? It's a very Western notion that sadness is black and joy is white. Yes. In many Eastern cultures, white is the color of mourning. Exactly. You, uh, in India, you wear red for weddings and white for funerals. Right, right. So how does that, I wish, I wish you and I were white or red. In India, do we have, is uh, joy and sorrow, good and evil, black and white? Is it really white and red? How? Yeah. I do not know. That is an excellent question. I've read a number of books that featured Indians. Or, you know, an Indian were immigrant written, were story. By, were they written by Indians? Yes. Yes. Well, that, written by that, Indians. Yeah, that would be a good indicator. Yeah, but I there were no black and there was no no repeated motif of light in any of them that I can remember. It's funny that that it's so strong in my mind that black is the color of mourning, which is bad, and white is the color of weddings, which is good. It's it's just interesting to think of how those repeated motifs, not in any novel, but in our culture, have influenced my interpretation of whether a color is happy or sad. Yes, absolutely. Good point. Oh, so what did you what did you find in the beach house? Okay, the beach house um, has some extremely overt repeating motifs. Uh, The book is about mother she's almost 70 and she lives part of the time in a beach house in the low country of south carolina and she loves protecting the loggerhead turtles who come to nest on the shore every chapter begins with a brief description of how loggerhead turtles produce their young how what happens to the young it's all about parenting and being able to defend yourself Lockerhead turtles abandon their children after they lay the eggs. It was an absolutely overt motif that was you smacked over the head. That was an easy <laughs> one. To she also used uh, imagery of certainly water and almost always ocean to describe uh, mood. She would say, uh, I felt as light as a breeze off the ocean or Often people who were bad were described as icy. She just used water as a motif throughout. Water, the ocean sort of becomes a character um, in the book. Uh, I came over the bridge and the ocean welcomed me. Nice. So there's a really, really strong repeated motif of water. She uses plants and flowers. Most of the repeated motifs are based on nature. They're very... Plants and flowers, water, sand. So there's a huge presence of nature. Occasionally, I would come across a motif of crafts that were traditionally women. Weaving, knitting, crocheting. We knit together our love. 
you know, I, it was it was a very female driven book, obviously. Mm-hmm. So so those were the repeated motifs. I found them because I was looking for them. I began to roll my eyes when I saw them because I was looking <laughs> for them. It became so overt and so obvious. And the climax is a hurricane where the water rushes in and the water becomes dangerous and we're all threatened by the water. So, yeah, I got I got I thought it was I thought it was a sledgehammer of a repeated motif. You're right. It was a very good example of a repeated motif. Yeah, I thought it might be. (laughs) (laughs) But it was too much is what you're saying. So which is a really interesting point. The question is, was it too much because I was looking for it or was it too much under any circumstance? You obviously chose it for a reason. How did you know this would be a good one to discuss? I have read analysis of this book. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching writing, I was looking for examples of good examples of using the setting as a character. Oh, well, sure enough. I mean, the ocean is practically comes to dinner, right? I mean, it's very, very human. And don't they also fix up the house? Mm-hmm. And so the the concept that I I remember is that the mother and daughter repair the house as they are repairing their relationship. Exactly right. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And the love interest comes along and builds the front porch. Ah, yeah. So, and then... The front porch gets swept away in the hurricane, but the love interest comes back at the last minute and says, we can rebuild it. <laughs> there you go. Pretty. It's yeah, it's a, it's a good example. You're exactly right. Yeah. But it sounds as if she was, the author was extremely deliberate in the creation of these motifs in the right. writing of these motifs. I think, I think you're right. And I'm thinking that you would have to be because yeah, to wield a repeating motif successfully, it would have to be a conscious decision. Right. I know that I made a conscious decision to explore the concept of light and dark in a token of love. Although I have to say the, the idea of the flint box came to me when I was like almost halfway done and I went back and, and put it in <laughs> earlier because the the took the book title is a token of love which is reference to a, a whist token which they used for gambling and, and playing whist and then I realized I should probably have a token of love in there <laughs> and so I came up with the idea of this flint box and because it it worked well on every level right. Right. I think that must have been a very satisfying moment when you went, oh, for God's sakes, of course. Exactly. I, I need to give the guy a big lighter only in the 18th century version. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> really nice. Not a big lighter. That's too cheap. A Zippo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's silver. 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 Exactly. Yes. With the mom's room. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it does have to be very deliberate. Because if you're going to build in a repeated motif, it really, it, it needs to have great meaning. It needs to be used again and again. It needs to, to build. And it, it's not something that can easily just come out and subconsciously, I don't think. Okay. Here's my, here's my question for you then. 
When I start a book, I figure out what my character's wounds are. Mm -hmm. In the one I'm working on now, the in some most simplistic forms, the guy is just incredibly stubborn and does not have an open mind. Mm -hmm. So throughout the book, I provide examples of him coming up against a brick wall because he cannot see in a different way. I don't see that so much as a repeated motif as I do his plot evolution. He has to have these experiences in order to realize, huh, maybe someone else's view might have some legitimacy, right? He, he, he needs to have an evolution. Right. So there are, there is an unintentional repeated motif of this guy going being, you know, being discovering that he has no rebuttal. Someone's made a point that he had never considered it doesn't fit into his worldview and he sort of shuts down. That's a repeated motif, but it's also a plot point. So, so if you actually made it physical, a brick wall, oh. Oh. then it would be somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and it doesn't even need to be a brick wall. It could be, you know, a wooden fence. It could be if you constantly put walls in his way physical walls that he had to get around or get past or figure out a way around or over, then it would be a literary, the literary repeated motif. Well, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. Uh, one of the, one of the minor characters in this one is a very large ostrich <laughs> who does wander through occasionally and cause chaos because they are dangerous birds. They're funny yeah. and comedic, but they're also, they have the potential to kick you to death. So, ho oh, oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> so I do occasionally have this ostrich wandering through. I wonder if I can't time it better so that the ostrich herself becomes a repeated motif for you are stubborn. You're going the wrong way here. Yeah. And, an, uh, and that is perfect because an ostrich sticks its head in the sand. Yes, it does. My God. <laughs> there you go. There's your motif. The ostrich belongs to the aging variety show host. He had a variety show in the 70s. He lives next door. And he's named all of his exotic birds after other famous. So he's got a Sonny and Cher pair of birds. And <laughs> he's named his ostrich Carol Burnett. So... Occasionally people go, oh, my God, here comes Carol Burnett. <laughs> it just makes me snort. It just makes me giggle. But I could I could use Carol Burnett the ostrich as a, as a repeating motif for this poor guy's inability to, to think around corners. Yes. Yes. Well, that's a very interesting idea. I have a, a client who is writing a Regency romance and... Uh, she uses a repeated motif in that the heroine wears gloves. And I mean, that was common during the Regency that ladies wore gloves, but she wears them constantly. She never, ever takes them off. And she doesn't take them off because um, her hands are, are rough and chapped okay. because she did physical labor. Okay. And so she's hiding this inside right. of her gloves. And so she's hiding and hiding herself and her bad hands, her, her unfeminine hands. Her reality, right? Her reality. 
until the end when the hero takes them off, literally. Because he sees her and no matter who she is or no matter where she's been, he accepts her. And so he takes off the, her gloves. Well, she has to put them on as soon as she goes into society again. Your world is very repressive. Your world, <laughs> my, case, right my world, your world is very repressive. Put those gloves back on, honey. <laughs> Danforth is coming over for tea. God forbid she knows that you plowed the field. <laughs> It's good repeated. It's it's a very nice repeated. Wait a minute. You would say that glove wearing is a repeated motif because it's it's a symbol of her hiding herself. I think it's evidence. It's more than a repeating motif. It's plot point. She has to hide her hands. It and it's symbolic of her hiding herself, but it's more overt. You would you still call that a repeating motif? I think so. I think so. I don't know. Because I would like to know from Neil Gaiman, is a repeated motif a plot point as well? In the beach house, the turtles are not a plot point. The ocean is not a plot point. They just show up throughout. They they are expressive of mood and of relationships. But if you have scarred hands and are hiding from society, the fact that you had to work for your living, and so you wear gloves, I don't think I'd call that a repeated motif. I'd say that's a plot point. This is how you do that. Could be. I haven't read the book, I have to admit, because she's still writing it. But that's an interesting point. Like, uh, does she, does, are other things in her house shadowed or covered up or shaded? Are, does she pull the shade when she gets into her carriage? Are there other instances when things are, are removed from view because I would Mm -hmm. call that a repeated motif, but the gloves I think would have to be a plot point. Hmm. Okay. Good point. Good point. What would you say to a phrase being a repeated motif? Oh, well, I think a phrase being a repeated motif is um, really overt. If he always says hot diggity, this is, this is great. Every time something good happens, that's less a repeated motif and more a tick of his personality. <laughs> you know, but if he references dogs under a million different circumstances, instead of hot diggity dog, he said, You have the loyalty of a golden retriever, right? I mean, if there is some way that he works dogs into the conversation, I'd say that could be a repeated motif. But I think a specific phrase, I think that's. I think that's too overt. I wouldn't call that a repeated motif. Hmm. Neil Gaiman obviously thinks it is. Yes, exactly. So I would trust him over me. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Because I'm thinking of of another client's book where he has a phrase that's repeated throughout. His his book is about, it's a coming of age story. And uh, when the protagonist is young, she's apprenticed to a wood carver who teaches her to carve wood, obviously, and to, to make cuts of her own. So throughout the book, which just means to, to carve her own path. And so throughout the book, as she's learning and growing, she reminds herself or others remind her to make cuts of her own. Okay. Well, and then I, 
Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep thinking. Yeah. So uh, I see that as a repeated motif, but it's really, it's a phrase and it's, it's demonstrative of her growing, of her carving her own path. And, and she really does. She goes beyond her society's norms and, and really, you know, becomes larger than life and, and more important, very important and, and so on and so forth. And she does so by going beyond the society's expected expectations. Well, that seems to me to be an example of what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is theme. Now I think you're stating the theme and repeating it for emphasis. Right. Which I think is good. So I guess your theme is also a repeated motif. Yeah, it's. It's really hard to sometimes tell the difference between a theme and a repeated motif. See, I agree with that. And that comes into um, my hero being closed-minded and uh, coming up against a brick wall. That's his theme. That's what he needs to overcome to progress. So I, I think that that is a repeating motif, but it's not. I think the Bridgerton B is a better example of a deft little repeated motif. Yeah. Because B is, has nothing to do with the theme. Right. No, it is not a theme. It's a, it's definitely a, a motif. I, I did look into the difference between a motif and a theme. And oh, one you- person thought that a theme is abstract, such as feelings of love or the character's underlying loneliness or in your case, their clo- his closed-mindedness, mm-hmm. and a motif is could is something tangible. Okay, under that under that under that definition, then saying "carve your own path" is not tangible. That would be a theme, right? And it's a damn good theme, incidentally. That sounds like a really good book. <laughs> oh, it's a great book. I love this book. I think it's it's going to be. I really hope that it sells like hotcakes. <laughs> Good. It sounds really good. All right. Well, um, what else, do we have any other thoughts on repeating motifs and how confusing they are? I don't think so, but I think I do think that repeating motifs are so cool. And it's so much fun when you get like two thirds of the way through a book and suddenly it hits you and you see it. I agree. I agree. I think that's fabulous. I would also like to point out for the Bridgerton series that there was the B was the symbol for Napoleon. You are so right. So is that, is that useful in the, in the understanding of what the B is doing there? Probably not, but it's probably not, but that is a very, very good point. That's a very interesting point. I forgot about that. I feel that we have, clarified the waters briefly but still pretty turgid here there's still a lot of mud in the in this a lot of sediment in the water i'm not entirely clear on i actually i'm clear on repeating motifs but i don't think i'm skillful enough to use them effectively yet i'll get there i think that you could um you just have to as i said be very deliberate about it yeah yeah i think you're right i'll have to see if i can't get carol burnett to be a more overt theme yeah Every time he's bullheaded, a large ostrich shows up. It wouldn't be. <laughs> that's pretty subtle, right? That's yeah. pretty subtle. 
next week, you and I are going to talk about multiple POVs in a novel. Yes. Which I think, you know what, if you're reading The Beach House now, keep reading it because the there are, I can think of at least six POVs in that novel. No kidding. Well, it was written in 2001, 2002. So I think it was more common then. And I think head hopping was more than she doesn't head hop. But there are a lot of POVs in that book. And every now and then there are two main ones. Mm-hmm. Then mother and the daughter. And then sometimes you slip into the love interest. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you slip into the girl who's living with them. And sometimes you slip into the brother. And <laughs> it's it's it just sort of surprised me. It's not not what I was expecting. So keep reading that book and we can maybe use that again as um, illustration for the challenges and opportunities of writing in multiple POVs. Excellent. I love that. It, okay. That is another very interesting concept because it's something that I know I totally got wrong when I first started writing and I would head hop and I would change POVs and I had to do a lot of research into POV point of view and to figure that one out. Let's make a point to define what head hopping is next week for those who are unaware. We absolutely will. Okay. All right. Then I'll talk to you next week, Mary. Great. Thanks so much, Prue. Thanks. Bye. That's it for the Writer's Block Party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week.